The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for your word because it contains the precious and magnificent promises that you have given each of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that by them we can partake of your power, the spiritual life that you have given us, and that we can demonstrate before all mankind and before the angels your grace and your love and your magnificence. Now as we open your word this morning to study it, We pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, that we can accurately uh, understand your word, and that these things would be transferred in our own souls by faith to our heart or the right lobe of the mentality of our soul so that it can be recalled by the Holy Spirit at times that we need it for application in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, down in verse 6. Now, we are gradually making progress. This is an epistle, probably the first of Paul's epistles to a group of believers who lived in the area of southern Galatia, Galatia being the Roman provincial name. I think that's how Paul was was using that, uh, as well as um, in a racial name. Now, I looked around the other day. In fact, I spent about half the morning, one morning, surfing the net, trying to find a good map uh, of the that I could use for this, and I never could. And this is a map of Paul's third missionary journey, but at least it gives you the general idea and geography of this part of the world. Uh, This is the area here defined along here as what we call the modern nation of Turkey. And the Bible refers to it Asia Minor. That was the Roman provincial name for this area. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Over here you have the Isle of Crete. Over here, uh, Cyprus. Israel is down here. Here's Jerusalem. Uh, Caesarea. Here is Antioch of Syria where there was a very strong church, and this is the home church that sent out Paul and Barnabas and John Mark on the first missionary journey. They left from uh, Antioch and they went to the island of Cyprus where they uh, proclaimed the gospel, led many people to the Lord, and then they left there and they went up to this area here of Turkey, which is the Roman province of Galatia, And the main towns they went to were these three, uh, Lystra, Derbe, and Iconium. And it was there that they had quite a number of adventures, and those are recorded in Acts chapter uh, 18 and 19, I believe. um, uh, This was quite an interesting group of people because they were made up, the the Galatians have the same ethnic background as the Gauls. They they go back to the, uh, the ancient Celt, migrations during the first millennium B.C., 
And as they left from uh, really the upper, not on the map, but the, uh, the area of what we'd call Russia or Belarus, Poland, that area, they migrated to the west down into uh, France, modern France. And, um, oh, I just love the background noise here. Can I get the fan, please? Um, anyway, they, they migrated there. And then this group migrated back to the east. And they went in to uh, try to invade Greece. And the Greeks defeated them at the, at the Battle of, uh, of Delphi in about 279 B.C. And then there was this large group of some 20 or 30,000 Celts that were hired by Nicomedes I of Bithynia. Now, Bithynia was another province in this area, more in the, more in the western part here of Turkey, another area, and uh, he needed some mercenaries in one of his local uh, battles and, and wars, so he hired these uh, 20,000 Celts to come and fight in his army. Now, they did a good job for him, and he won the war, uh, or won the battles, but he lost a war because he had all these Celts now living in the midst of his... Uh, his little country, and they were uh, rather wild and barbaric, and they raided all around the neighboring countryside, and they burned the cities and pillaged the farms and generally raised havoc all over the central part of, of uh, Turkey until um, <clears throat> one king finally just deeded them some land down in this part of the world, and they set up their own little kingdom. Then when the Roman Empire came in, they set that up as a province, and this has always generated various uh, scholarly arguments because the province extends way up into the northern part of Turkey here. Whether or not the epistle to the Galatians was written to northern Galatia, which would have more in mind the Roman provincial name up here, which would make it a much later epistle of Paul's, or whether it was written to the southern Galatians uh, down here, where the term was used more in its ethnic sense. And I believe it was... Uh, uh, down here because we don't have any record of Paul going into the northern part of Galatia. The only record we have of him visiting churches and establishing churches is in the southern part of Galatia. And the Celts were a wild and emotional people and they would follow one leader and then another leader as was their want swayed by their emotions. And what happened is Paul would come into these communities and we have the record of this in, in Acts that as he came into these communities then he would first go to a synagogue and he would teach the gospel. He would explain how Jesus Christ was the Messiah, how he fulfilled all of the Old Testament uh, prophecies about the Messiah, how he died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day. And there would be the odd Jew here or there that would respond. And then the next week he would come back to answer more of their questions. And in that week time they all got on their local telephone system, whatever it was, you know, ancient bell. And then they um, uh, communicated how bad this was, how terrible Paul was, and they would uh, generate a, a hostile audience, and then he would be kicked out of the synagogue the next week, and he would go to the Gentiles, and they had, gave him a healthy reception and just loved him and, and responded positively to the gospel, and he would establish a church. And so he went from one town to the other, and it got so bad in Derby that they, um, or in, in Lystra, that they stoned him, and they dragged his body out of town, and uh, he left him for dead, but uh, God either raised him from the dead if they had indeed killed him or miraculously uh, gave him recovery because he got up and walked away and they traveled on to the next town. But these Jews were his avowed enemies and there was also a group of Judaizers. That's what they're called is Judaizers because they tried to, to uh, destroy the, the gospel of grace that Paul taught. Paul clearly taught that salvation 
was in the only name of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There were no works attached to it. That was all that was necessary for salvation. And yet these Judaizers came along and said, no, 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 if you really, truly want to have the, the, be, be a believer, then you have to, have to be circumcised as well. This had become a, a very uh, integral part of the ritual of a <coughs> Gentile entering, becoming a, a convert to Judaism, was they not only had to go through some form of, of ritual washing, which they called a baptism at this time, but they also had to be, the males had to be circumcised or they were not considered a part of the covenant people and therefore they couldn't get into heaven. So they were teaching a works uh, gospel that you had to do something more than just faith and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, but you had to add, uh, you added works to it. And this just blew Paul's mind. He knew how fickle people were. He had been around a long time and he, Paul clearly understands people. But when it comes to... Uh, how quickly these Galatian believers deserted the gospel and went AWOL, it just, it just blew his mind. And we see this starting in verse 6. Now, I want to read these four or five verses to you. We won't get through all of them this morning, but we will, uh, we will begin. Starting in Galatians 1.6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some... Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Well, he starts the epistle off, this, or this verse off, with a very strong, strong word. In the Greek, it is thalmad, the verb thalmazo. T-H-A-U-M-A-Z-O. And here it's the present active indicative, which has a basic meaning of to marvel, to be amazed, to be astonished, to express, express wonder. Often this word is used in the gospel to express wonder and amazement at the miracles of Jesus. In fact, um, the noun form is, the noun of it is often used to, ex- to describe a miracle. It was a wonder. But Paul used it in a manner that's that's more related to its root meaning in classical Greek where, where the verb means to be astonished and is often used with the nuance of, a, of criticism, doubt, censure, and rejection. In other words, this word can have a very harsh overtone to it where the, the writer is, is not just saying, golly, I'm really amazed at that. He is saying, I'm just shocked by your despicable behavior. I mean, that's how it's coming across. The tone in this epistle by the Apostle Paul is very strong and very harsh. In fact, he, he, he uses a lot of sarcasm in different places. He really uses language that's designed to get these people's attention. Now, why? It's not because Paul is just hard or difficult. It's not because he woke up that morning and he's just got a bad day because he woke up with a grumpy attitude. 
It's because the issues that are at stake are the most important in life. And that's the gospel. No one, no pastor, can express his love for the congregation and for people more clearly than to make sure that the gospel is clearly proclaimed. Because if you're going to distort the gospel, what this passage says is you can't be saved in any other way than by believing the true gospel. If you add anything to faith, you destroy it. Faith plus anything equals nothing. That's the point of this entire passage. If you add baptism, if you add any form of works or doing good or anything like that to faith, then you nullify faith. Scripture is clear. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the apostle is just shocked at their behavior, at how quickly they've deserted the gospel because the the ramifications are phenomenal. No longer can they save people because the gospel that they're going to share is a false gospel. The gospel they're going to communicate to their friends won't save anybody. And not only that, but once you start perverting the gospel, then what follows is you begin to pervert the Christian life. If salvation becomes a salvation by works, and you either front load or back load the gospel with works, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, then what happens is that bleeds over into your views of the Christian life, which is known as sanctification. If you introduce works at justification, then what you always end up doing is merging sanctification with justification and confusing the two. And this is exactly what's happened in Lordship Salvation. Now, Lordship Salvation is a very um, um, subtle form of of perverting the gospel. When I talk about front-loading the gospel with works... To front load it means to make the works right up front. You have to believe and be baptized in order to be saved. If you're not baptized, faith alone won't do it. You have to be baptized. Or you have to do good works. If you don't do good works, then you're not saved. You have to do good works. That's front loading the gospel. Back loading the gospel is very subtle because what that does, the term Backloading means that it comes in from the, on the back side. They will say, you, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard him say that. But, and after the but comes the kicker. But, the assurance of your salvation then comes from your works. So assurance no longer derives from the veracity of the promise of God in his word Assurance derives from your own works or fruit. And so they go to passages like the Gospels that say, by their fruits you will know them. So you're going to look at your life. You're going to see if there are fruits that are consistent with being a Christian. And you're doing those kind of works. And if they're not there, then the kind of faith that you have is not saving faith. You don't have a true saving faith. And so... You never were saved. You can, you can even go so far as to say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior at this point in your life. And then when you're, uh, and then go to church and get involved in all kinds of Christian activity. Usually this is all, this kind of a doctrine is always associated with uh, some form of Reformed theology. Reformed theology is the uh, system that was originally founded by a man named John Calvin. And 
I brought you a picture. He was rather a door-faced man. There we see our picture of John Calvin up there. And Calvin really would not go along with a lot that, that comes under his name. Calvin had a very good definition of faith, saw faith as the assent to true propositions, and he did not uh, backload faith with works. There are other aspects of his theology that did give itself over to this, and that's why when his su- successor, Theodore Beza, took over the movement and began to systematize Calvin's theology. He picked up on other aspects of his theology and basically came into a system that, uh, that how you really knew that you were one of the elect, how you really knew that you were saved, was not simply your profession of faith, but also the works that went along with it. They were so concerned about the reaction of the Catholics because in the context of the Protestant Reformation, the, Catholic, the Catholics charged them with licentiousness. Oh, you're saying salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone. Then that's all you have. You're going to just uh, believe in Jesus and then you're going to let your people just go do all the sins they want to. And they responded by saying, no, 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 no. If it's real saving faith, then they won't sin like they did before they were saved. And this is the very subtle error in their assumptions. It's in some way the sin nature, the power of the sin nature or the, and the presence of the sin nature in the believer according to Reformed theology, is diminished by regeneration so that they're no longer going to be as sinful as they were before they were saved. So they can be saved at X point and go through years of church involvement and Bible study and living a good life and doing everything well and looking like they're a believer and then come over here to Y point and just tube it and forget, you know, reject Christ, reject the gospel, get involved in all sorts of immorality and everything, and, and, uh, and die. We would say they would die the sin unto death down here at point Z. And the Lordship Salvation Advocate would come along and say, well, if you look at the totality of their life, there's no fruit. Because this, all of this canceled it all out. Because according to their doctrine that they call the perseverance of the saints means that if you are a true believer, you will persevere and continue in growth all the way to the point of death. There may be moments when you come down, but you'll always come back up. You can sin as a believer and you will sin as a believer, but you're always going to maintain that faith in Jesus. You're never going to, you're never going to be able to completely fall away and reject Christ. And um, they would look at this and evaluate the fruit and say, well, you can look at this person's life now because when they died, they had rejected Christ. They didn't believe in Him anymore. They didn't believe in the Bible. So they never had real saving faith. So according to that view of Reformed theology and Lordship salvation, how do you know if you're truly saved? You never do. You never have the assurance and conviction of your salvation. Because that derives from your fruit, not from the promise of God. So it is nothing more than blasphemy and heresy to affirm lordship salvation. That if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord of all. As if your, your statement that I believe Jesus is, is Lord is going to make him Lord. He's Lord whether you believe it or not. He's the Lord of the universe. That is not the issue in salvation. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the problem with this is that there is a confusion between the doctrines of justification 
which takes place at a moment in time when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what happens is at that moment in time, you're here. This circle represents you. God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that now you possess perfect righteousness. You were a sinner. You have a sin nature right here. This is your sin nature. You've always been a sinner. You always will be a sinner. You always have a sin nature that's part of your makeup. That hasn't been diminished one iota by the fact that you are now regenerate. But God has imputed to you, which is a legal term, not an experiential term. It is a legal term. It means to credit something to your account. God has credited to your account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that now when God looks at you, He sees not your relative righteousness, not your sin nature. What He looks at is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ which you possess. And at that moment, and all of this takes place simultaneously, at that moment because you, you possess the righteousness of Christ, God the Father from the Supreme Court of Heaven declares you to be justified. And the word justified or justification and righteousness all derive from the same Greek word, dikaiosune. And depending on the context, it has a different sense or different nuance of meaning. God declares you to be justified, so it is a legal term. It is a legal act. It proceeds from the Supreme Court of Heaven, and it is not experiential. That means that at the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... At that moment, you may or may not experience anything. You may feel better, but you may not. You may have a hangover. You'll still have a hangover. You may have the worst cold in your life. You'll still have the worst cold in your life. You may be very discouraged about some things that are going on in your life, and you may still be very discouraged about things that are going on in your life. None of that may change. It might change. Everybody's different. The experience is subsequent to and irrelevant to the act of justification. And... The moment you are justified at that instant, God the Father also imputes to you and imparts to you, creates and instantly imparts to you through the Holy Spirit a human spirit. And this enables you to now have a relationship with God. And God the Father also imputes to that human spirit eternal life so that now you have the very life of God, His eternal life, and you will live forever. Now, this is the act of justification. Now, sanctification is a process. Sanctification has to do with the entire spiritual life. Sanctification begins at the moment of salvation and extends throughout the believer's life until he is taken to be with the Lord, either at death or through the rapture. Sanctification is that process of spiritual growth. Now, you may be a flatliner and not grow at all as a believer. You may hear the gospel and never hear any more doctrine by which to grow. That's how you grow in the spiritual life. We grow by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. Just because you're born again doesn't mean you're going to grow. You are like a, like a newborn babe where to desire the milk of the Word so that by it we can grow. That's how growth takes place, through the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. If there's no doctrine 
for the new believer to express his faith toward and to apply, then there's nothing, no basis for his growth, and he can just be a flatliner. You can also grow as you take in doctrine and learn it and apply it in your life. Then you may grow to a certain point and then just reject everything and go become a backslider and fall away from the faith. But you're still born again. You're still justified because justification is a separate thing. This was one of the major issues underlying the Protestant Reformation was that Roman Catholic theology had failed to distinguish between sanctification and justification. In Roman Catholic theology, justification is a process, as is sanctification. Funny thing, Reformed theology in its opposition to Roman Catholic theology has gone full circle. And they're back. How do you know that you're justified? By your sanctification. So that you can never know for sure that you're going to end up in heaven until you die. And it's only at that point that you can know for certain whether or not you're going to have eternal life. But what does the Scripture say? John, we, we heard in the second hour in our study of the Gospel of John, but these are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you may have a good idea, not so you hope maybe if you keep doing the right things and keep having fruit in your life that you have eternal life, but so that you can have so that you can know that you have eternal life. It's that assurance of our salvation that is spoken of again and again and again in the Scriptures. So what happens in Lordship Salvation today, whenever you muddy the waters, what usually happens is you're blurring the distinction between justification and sanctification. So this just shocks the Apostle Paul, and he just starts off with this first verb, just loaded with a whole sense of, uh, of disaster, and he's just appalled that they have so quickly deserted the gospel. He says, I am appalled that, and this is the Greek word hati, which is causal, and it shouldn't be translated that, it should be translated because. I am appalled. Why? Because you have so quickly deserted. And here we have the present the present passive indicative of metatithemi in the Greek. M-E-T-A-T-I-T-H-E-M-I. Metatithemi means to change, to bring back, to alter, to pervert, to desert, to turn away from. So, Paul says, I am appalled because you have so quickly deserted, you have so quickly perverted, you have so quickly turned away from the one who called you. You see, once you are saved, you're always saved. They have deserted, but they haven't lost their salvation. This is very, very important to understand that the Scriptures clearly teach that once you are saved, you are always saved. Because of what happens at salvation. Here you are as an unbeliever. Another circle. I like circles. Here you are as an unbeliever. You have a soul and you have a body. And that's the circle. You are dichotomous. You have a soul and you have a body and that's it. You do not have a human spirit. 
Therefore, you cannot understand spiritual truth at all. So what happens at salvation is that God the Holy Spirit functions as a substitute for your human spirit in order to make sure that you as an unbeliever can understand the principles of the gospel. So somebody comes along and they sit down and they explain the gospel to you. They explain the fact that you are are a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They explain the fact that good works can't impress God at all because God says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So as far as God's concerned, the very best that you can do is garbage. So if that's the best that you can do, you can't do anything to impress God. But God did all the work for you. Scripture says that that Christ died on the cross for your sins. For God so loved the world that He provided a solution. He sent His only unique Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So now you respond. You have in your soul volition. And you exercise your positive volition. And you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And at that instant, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to you a human spirit so now you can uh, learn the gospel. Forty other things, or 39 other things, happen to you at that instant. We've explained some of them already. You are justified. You are born again with the human spirit. God imputes to you His very own eternal life. You are... uh, uh, made a member of the royal family of God. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, begins to permanently indwell you. And all of these other things happen to you at the instant of salvation. Now, if you can lose your salvation or do something to lose your salvation, then what you are saying is that God who made you alive again is now going to kill you. He's going to kill you spiritually and destroy all of this and undo everything. Because all of this is described in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is therefore if anyone is in Christ, which is another of the 40 things at that instant that we put our faith and trust in, in Him, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. So what happens at the moment of salvation is phenomenal. It is incredible. It is transforming. Everything is different after that. And what you say when you claim that you lose your salvation is that God goes back on His Word and takes all of that away and converts you back to an unbeliever and kills you spiritually. That's absurd. That is absolutely absurd. So we need to go over the doctrine of eternal security... Make sure we understand all of the principles here. We're not going to go into it extensively, but I want to hit the high points. First of all, eternal security is defined as an unbreakable relationship with God that depends exclusively on the character of God and the finished work of Christ on the cross. The important part of that is that it's an unbreakable relationship. It depends on God and His character and not you and your character. It wasn't mankind that came up with a plan of salvation. It was God who came up with a plan of salvation billions and billions of years ago. At some remote time in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a holy huddle. And they made a game plan. 
And that game plan we call the plan of God. And in that plan of God, God included everything that would happen in the human race. And this is called the doctrine of the divine decree. There's only one decree. Sometimes we say decrees because it's made up and broken down into various facets. But there's only one decree. And in that decree, God provided everything, everything that man would need. That's why I have been starting off several services with the reading from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, not most things, not most of what we want, but everything pertaining to life and godliness, which is the Greek word eusebeia, which means the spiritual life. Godliness is another one of those terms like, like holiness and confession. It's just picked up this... Uh, this, this spiritual or religious baggage over the generations that people just think it's so wonderful. And you ask somebody, well, tell me, what is godliness? Oh, it's talking in a certain tone of voice. And it's living a certain kind of life. And, and it's always sort of walking with your head in the clouds where you're, you're uh, so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good. And that's not what godliness means at all. It means, even the English word means leanness, means likeness, God-likeness. It's living like God. And that ultimately means, even in English, in Old English, the spiritual life. And the Greek dictionaries make this very clear, that what Eusebia means is the spiritual life. So Second Peter 1.3 says that His divine power, that is through revelation, through giving us Scripture, has granted to us everything. Every single thing you need has been provided for you at the cross. In God's eternal plan, in His eternal divine decree, God didn't leave anything out because God is omniscient. Being omniscient, God knows all the knowable. That means if you have a choice between ten different options, God knows exactly what will happen in each different of those ten cases. If you have a hundred different options... God knows exactly what will happen, not only in your life, but to everybody else involved, everybody else that, that's tangential to those, each of those decisions. If you were to live in Houston, Detroit, Chicago, L.A., uh, Hartford, Boston, New York, wherever it might be, let's say you have an option, you're graduating from college, you have an option to go live in any of those cities. Job offers. He knows what will happen to you in that career. He knows your salary increases. He knows whether or not you will succeed or fail. He knows who your friends will be. He knows what church you would attend. He knows what successes and failures you would have, who you would meet, who you wouldn't meet, who you would marry, how many kids you would have, everything. God knows all the knowable. He knows all the options. He knows all the possibilities as well as all the realities. And being omniscient, God knows every single sin that every human being will ever commit and so to say that you're going to do something to lose your salvation is, is really saying that God didn't know I was going to do this. And therefore, it wasn't paid for by Christ on the cross. And therefore, my, this sin is so great and so heinous that it's too great for the grace of God. And so it's nothing but pure, unadulterated arrogance to think that you can do something that surprises God and that is so bad and so evil and so wicked that the grace of God could not plan for it, and provide for it, and take care of it. So eternal security is defined as an unbreakable relationship with God that depends exclusively on the character of God and the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
Jesus paid it all. He said, it is finished, tetelestai, a Greek word that has tremendous implications because before he died physically on the cross, Jesus said, it's finished, I've done everything I intended to do, all the sins of the world are paid for, every single one of them, and it is complete. And after that, he died physically. Now, a little caveat. Knowing the doctrine of eternal security does not cause you to go out and just raise hell. It doesn't mean that you can just go commit any sin you want to with impunity. That is not what eternal security does. It doesn't mean that you now have a license to sin and do whatever you want to in life and commit all the sins you want to and just run rampant. Now, you can if you want to, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is rather to guarantee that when you fail, you know that you will never fall out of the plan of God. As long as you are alive, you're in God's plan, and you can recover from that sin, and you're never going to lose your salvation. Eternal security means you can have the confidence to know that God's love for you is not based on what you do at all. God's love for you is based completely and totally on what, who, and who He is and what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Therefore, it has an unshakable, immutable foundation and you don't ever have to worry about the fact that somehow you do something that so shocks God that you're going to lose that relationship with God. You can always recover. Now, that doesn't mean that your sins aren't going to have consequences. They are. They're going to have consequences of uh, what you reap, you will sow. The law of responsibility there, and it will also have the effect of divine discipline. And you may go through incredible suffering because of your stupid, sinful decisions, but you will never lose your salvation. To think that maintaining your security is dependent on what you do is ultimately to make your works the basis of salvation. Whether you front load or back load the gospel with works, ultimately what you're doing is you're making your works and your behavior and what you do and your choices the basis of salvation rather than God. The second point is that man's failure does not cancel the integrity of God. The integrity of God is eternal, infinite, and immutable. The integrity of God, when we look at the essence of God, God is sovereign. He is plus R for perfect righteousness. He is just. He is love. He is eternal life. Then we have the three omni-brothers. He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He knows everything. He is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He is omnipotent. God can do whatever He wants to do. He has the ability to accomplish whatever He intends to accomplish. God is omnipresent. That means that God is present at every moment to every aspect of His creation. God is immutable, which means God's character never changes, so we do not have to worry that, well, God's going to change His mind tomorrow and forget about us, take our salvation away. And God is veracity, which means God is absolute truth, and that God never lies, and so we can rely exclusively upon His Word. Now, the integrity of God comprises these three aspects of God's character. His righteousness, which provides the standard, for God's character. Righteousness is the, the God's value system. Righteousness is God is, is the perfect value or standard by which God does according to which God does everything. His justice is his execution of his righteousness towards his creation. Justice describes God's perfect just decisions 
that are always fair towards all the aspects of his creation. And love expresses God's provision for his creation. So we can say that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses through the love of God as expressed in the grace of God. What the righteousness of God condemns, the justice of God judges, but the love of God provides a solution for recovery through the grace of God. So the righteousness, the justice, and the love of God are interlinking aspects of the, of the character of God that we describe as his perfect integrity. Man's weakness and man's failures cannot and does not cancel God's strength. There's nothing that you can do that will cause God to lose his integrity and to go back on his word and to violate his promises. What happens whenever anybody says that they're going to lose their salvation is they are more impressed with their own failures and their own sin than they are with the righteousness and the holiness and the justice and the immutability and the love of God. They're more impressed with what they're going to do than the character of God. Three, salvation through faith in Christ results in receiving the righteousness of God. The moment of salvation, God imputes to you at that instant, here you are, you're the box. You have a soul now and a human spirit. And at that same instant, simultaneously, with the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God imputes to you that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as long as you have that, that's the basis for your salvation, not your works. That's the basis for your blessing, not your works. God doesn't bless you because you came to church or because you tithed or because you support that favorite missionary somewhere else in the world or because you went on a missions trip or because you're teaching Sunday school. God never blesses you because of that. That would be works. That would be sanctification by works. God blesses you because you possess the perfect righteousness of God. Now, there's different categories of blessing. But the basic category is logistical grace blessings, and that always comes to the believer, whether he's a carnal believer or a spiritual believer. God's always going to give you the air you need to breathe, the food you need to survive, or whatever, and, and, and the doctrine is going to be available for your spiritual recovery unless you go so far in, into uh, carnality that you're taken out with the sin unto death. But God provides you with perfect righteousness and you never lose that. No matter what sins you commit, you never lose the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Five, or four, because of the immutable, eternal, infinite attributes of God, He cannot cancel your salvation. Because of the immutable, eternal, infinite attributes of salvation, I mean of God, He cannot cancel the salvation of any believer no matter how gross and repugnant and heinous his sins might be. Because that salvation was never given you because you had such a wonderful personality and you were so holy and so righteous and so good. So your behavior, your personality, whatever you might be relying on, that impressed God somehow was never the basis of getting salvation in the first place, so it's not the basis for keeping salvation. Now, point number five, let's look at a scripture, Jude 24. Jude 24. Hold your place in Galatians and turn over to Jude 24. 
little postcard in the back of your Bible right before Revelation. One chapter, so it's hard to, uh, so it's easy to miss. Jude, the last verse, or next to last verse, 24, in the benediction of the letter, Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now the point he is making here is that it is he, it is God who is able to keep you. God has the power. He's the one who's omnipotent. He is the one who has the power to keep you from falling and losing your salvation. Because your salvation, you are kept in Christ and saved, not by your power, but by the power of God. And He is the one who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory. And see, that happens not because somehow in life you've managed to kill off the sin nature and live a sinless life. That happens because after salvation, you live your life and then you die or you're raptured and you go to heaven. And phase one of salvation means that you are saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. Phase two means that in sanctification, you are saved from the power of sin over your life. Now, if you apply doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And phase three is glorification. And in phase three, you lose the sin nature. So you're minus the... righteousness of Christ, no sin nature, so you are faultless and perfect once you enter heaven. Now, you, if you were a failure as a believer in this life, then you don't have a lot of capacity. At the judgment seat of Christ, you're not only not going to have rewards, but it says that you're going to suffer loss, but not loss of salvation. You're still going to be in heaven because you're going to enter yet as through fire, but you will be faultless. And Jesus Christ is the one who perseveres. Jesus Christ is the one who keeps you all the way through until glorification, and salvation. Let's look at another passage. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Turning back a few pages, 2 Timothy. All the books in the New Testament that start with a T are all together. First and 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Just a little way of remembering where things are. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, 12, and 13 is a, some lines that are probably taken from, a, from an early hymn that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul included because of the doctrine they contain. It starts off, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, and we have, that's what happens in, our, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are a positional truth, We are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. If we died with Him, and we have, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, that is, in suffering for blessing, the concept of perseverance and endurance, which we're studying in James on Wednesday night, if we endure in suffering for blessing, then we shall rule with Him. Why? Because if you endure, you're going to grow to spiritual maturity. That's the point in James 1, 2 through 4. That's how you grow to spiritual maturity is through perseverance. If you grow in perseverance and you continue to learn doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then what's going to happen is that when you die and we go before the Lord in the judgment seat of Christ, then we're going to receive rewards. And part of that is that we will be given various responsibilities for ruling and reigning with Him 
not only in the millennial kingdom, but in eternity. So if we endure, persevere in, in a spiritual growth, then we shall rule with Him as mature believers. If we deny Him, that is, if we are unfaithful, then He will deny us what? Not our salvation, but rewards. That's 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment seat of Christ. They suffer loss. Believers at the judgment seat of Christ who have nothing but wood, hay, and stubble, stubble suffer loss, but it goes on to say they enter heaven yet as through fire. So they don't lose salvation, they just lose rewards. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. This is not a loss of salvation. Now, when you're talking with somebody, they're going to go to this verse and they're going to say, see, right here, right here, we're going to lose salvation. But that would contradict the next verse, which says, if we are faithless, in other words, if we decide to reject Christ as our Savior, nevertheless, He is He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Even if we are faithless and reject Him, after we're once saved and put our faith and trust in Christ, even if we say, you know, that was a mistake, I shouldn't have done it, I was stupid, I did heck with all that Christianity, guess what? You're still a believer. You're still saved. You can't get rid of it, because even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, point number six dealt with the passage in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, that God is faithful and will never go back on his word and we will never lose our salvation. Point number seven, that is the, the analogy or the metaphor in Scripture for sealing. In Ephesians 1, 13, turn back a few books. The book right after Galatians is Ephesians. Ephesians 1, chapter 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him, that is, in Christ, you also, you, talking to believers, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed the point of salvation, once you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, one of the other 40 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation is that you are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. This picks up all of the imagery of the Roman seal and what that meant and, and as, a, as a stamp of ownership, a seal, a guarantee seal that could not be broken. So the ministry of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation is spoken of as a, as a guarantee, a pledge, a signature guarantee, a seal that cannot be broken, of salvation. You are sealed into the family of God. This is yours forever and ever and cannot be removed. Ephesians 4.30, Paul says it again. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. So he's talking to believers who are out of fellowship and carnal. And he says, stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. Now they're out of fellowship. But they can continue to be out of fellowship if they want. Paul's calling them to, to stop, to confess their sins, to get back in fellowship. But nevertheless, they have been sealed until the day of redemption. Sealing is a sign of possession in their culture. And this shows that we are the possession of God and that can never be taken away. Once we're a member of that family, no matter what happens, we can't lose that. You are a child of your parents. They can go to court and they can disinherit you. They can do all kinds of things and never talk to you again. But it never changes the fact that they're your parents and you're in their family. 
You have their genetic heritage. You're theirs. Nothing can ever change that. Once we're in God's family, God's not going to kick us out of His family. Point number eight, looking at a couple of other passages that are very, very important. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Jesus is speaking. Once again, he's having a little confrontation with the, um, the religious leaders. And he says, uh, pick up the context starting in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. Once eternal life is given, it can't be taken away. and They, it will, they will never perish. And no one, no one, not even them by their lousy, rotten, sinful decisions shall snatch them out of my hand. When God, when Christ holds them in His hand, there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can pry those fingers loose for Him to let go. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He is omnipotent. No angel, no demon, Satan, no man, Nothing has more power than God. And God says no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So therefore we are eternally secure because our security depends on the Father's power, on Christ's power, not on our power. And then to conclude, one more verse to look at that's so important. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul concludes this magnificent discussion of doctrine in Romans chapter 8 with these two verses. He says, For I am convinced, absolutely certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that neither death nor life, he uses opposites here to include everything, death and life, nor angels nor principalities. Principalities here probably refers to demonic powers. Angels or demons. Principalities. Nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing that will ever happen. Nothing that's happening on heaven and earth now. Nothing that will ever happen in heaven and earth in the future. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? What's left out? Nothing. No, or any, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what's the point? The point is that once you express your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you're entered into union with Him through the doctrine of positional truth, baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're regenerated, given a human spirit, and all the other things that happen to you at the point of salvation are never reversed. They never can be reversed because they are your possession forever and ever and they don't depend on your volition at all but on the power of God and His faithfulness and His immutability. So back, let's turn back to our passage in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am appalled because you have so quickly 
run away from Him who called you by the grace of Christ. The one who called you is from a very important Greek word, kaleo. Looks like I'm running out of clear space. Kaleo. Kaleo is a very technical word in the New Testament. And it refers, theologians describe it as having two references. There is the external call, which is the proclamation of the gospel. Whenever you communicate your, the gospel to an unbeliever, that's the external call, the invitation. Not the invitation to walk an aisle. That was an Arminian gimmick that came up about 150 years ago. But the external call, the offer to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't invite Jesus into your heart. Jesus invites you to put your faith and trust in Him. And then the two, the internal call. This is the work of God the Holy Spirit to the unbeliever in making the gospel clear to the unbeliever at the moment of salvation. It is the Holy Spirit who makes it clear. So you're deserting Him who called you through the Holy Spirit by means of, and here we have the phrase in kariti, in plus the dative of means, by means of the grace of Christ. God provides everything for you. That's what grace means. God does all the work and we simply accept it. The point in this whole passage is faith plus anything nullifies faith. Faith plus anything equals nothing. When you add anything to faith, works, baptism, whatever it might be, you destroy it. It's no longer of grace. It's no longer a free gift. That's what grace means. It is a free gift. Grace is the policy of God in all of His dealings with mankind. It doesn't matter what dispensation. In the Old Testament, they weren't saved by obeying the Mosaic Law. That would be works. That would be a violation of God's grace. God exercises His administration in different dispensations differently, but it is always under the policy of grace that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, either in the promise of the coming Savior or in the uh, completed works of the crucified Savior. N plus the dative means that we are saved by means of the grace of Christ. And then it says... Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And this is a very important word here. There's a lot of discussion. It's the Greek word heteros. Where we get H-E-T-E-R-O-S. Where we get our English word like heterodoxy or heterosexual. has to do with another of a different kind. There's another word that's used in this same passage, alas, A-L-L-O-S, which means another, usually of the same kind. Now, sometimes these words are used interchangeably, but uh, when they're used in the same passage like this, then they have these distinct nuances to them. So what Paul is saying here is that I'm appalled because you have deserted the grace of Christ for a different kind of gospel. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, which is really not another alas, another of the same kind. It is a different 
kind of gospel. It is a categorically different gospel. Now, that brings us to the most important question, which is, what is the gospel? It comes from the Greek word, euangelion, which means good news, glad tidings. What is the good news? The good news is that man is not left in his trespasses and sins, but that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for him so that he can have eternal life. Now, to understand the gospel, we need to look at one of the most clear passages of the expression of the gospel, and that's just back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. Here we read, For I delivered to you, Now, I want to start in verse 1 to get the context. Paul's writing says, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So, that's the subject here is the gospel. The gospel which I proclaim to you, which also you received. That is, you accepted it. And that's a, a synonym for believing in Christ as your Savior. In which also you stand. You haven't left it. You're still faithful. You still hold the gospel. You're really screwed up there in Corinth. You're carnal. You've got all kinds of divisions. You're getting into tongues. You've gotten into all kinds of licentiousness and antinomianism, but you've hung with the gospel. By which also you are saved. You're really screwed up. One of the worst churches in the entire Roman Empire. But you're saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It has to do with not going forward in the Christian life. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Okay, this is the gospel right here in a nutshell. What I received, one, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Preposition, who pair Christ died as a substitute for our sins, emphasizing substitutionary atonement, which Paul again emphasized in Galatians 1, 4, and 5. That Christ died as a substitute for our sins. And two, second part of the gospel, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Two aspects that are vital in Paul's proclamation of the gospel. That Christ died as a substitute for our sins and that he was buried and rose again on the third day. Now, this is substantiated. A lot of people miss this resurrection aspect, but it's prevalent throughout Paul's expression of the gospel. Turn back to Acts chapter 13. I want to make sure you get this point. Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Paul is coming into Galatia. Acts chapter 13 and 14 describes Paul's first missionary journey when he comes to the Galatians. And starting in verse 26, he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, that would be the Gentiles that were there, who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, in other words, they just couldn't see that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, in other words, they fulfilled the prophecies, Paul explained that, the crucifixion, how this related to various prophecies in Psalm Psalm 22 and other passages in the Old Testament. They took him down from the cross 
and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. Notice 32. We proclaim to you the gospel of the promise. And what is it? That God has fulfilled his promise in that he raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And if we go throughout this and we can look at a number of other passages, it is very clear that resurrection of Christ is a vital part of the gospel because it affirms who he was as God and that he had the ability to die on the cross for our sins. The point is very clear that in the gospel, Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Now, it's free. The gospel is free. You don't do anything to earn or deserve it. Revelation 22:17 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's free of charge. For God so loved the world that He gave His only unique Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who, what? Believe on his name. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that, what? That you believe in him whom he has sent. Not believe and do anything, just believe alone. John 11, 20, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? That's the issue, is belief. Acts 16, 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans three twenty two. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may what? Know, know with certainty that you have eternal life. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word this morning and the clarity of of your word in terms of describing our salvation and all that you have done for it and that it is something that you have done completely and totally and nothing that we do. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who does not have Jesus Christ as their Savior is uncertain of their eternal life, that right now in the privacy of their own soul they would take the time to deal with this most important issue, that they would not put it off, but right now they would take the opportunity. All they have to do is say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins was buried and rose again. This is the gospel, the good news. It's just a, a free gift. That's all you have to do is accept it. And then you have eternal life. Father, now as we continue throughout this morning, we pray that all that we do will honor and glorify you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.